0: Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Mags with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South Africa and global news live and then we are up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Monday the 15th of January. Coming up on the program, the annual World Economic Forum meeting begins in Davos today. We'll look at the event's trust theme in more detail. Is the African National Congress running scared of the new MKV party threat? How can ghost SASA payments be effectively audited? And are we sitting on another potential cholera crisis? Representatives of governments and international organizations are arriving in Davos, in Switzerland. Under the motto Rebuilding Trust, the 54th Annual Meeting of the World Economic Forum starts aiming to discuss what is termed the basic principles of trust, transparency, coherence, and responsibility. With us now is Cusini Dlamini. He's a business leader and commentator. And first up, how can, in your opinion, that trust issue be addressed?
1: Addressing the current trust deficit in geopolitics and geoeconomics is a very pressing challenge of our time. Needless to say, we're seeing the wars in Russia, Ukraine, and Israel and Gaza, specifically against Hamas. And I think world leaders from both business and government gathering in Davos really have to reflect and uh, think long and hard in terms of finding mechanisms to build bridges, build trust and confidence, and address the differences that we see. What we're seeing in terms of some research work done by the World Economic Forum recently, it concludes that there is an increase in the trust deficit between developing countries and developed countries, and furthermore, that within developed and within developing countries, there is also an increase in the trust deficit between the rich and the poor. So we're seeing this playing out at all levels, at a global level, regional level. So it is really fundamentally important mm. that leaders across all sectors think long and hard in terms of putting the interest of global peace and stability and the interest of building a better world for all above all else.
0: Among those key role players that will gather in Switzerland, do you think there's a real willingness to build the bridges or do you think that we've got to a point now where it becomes incrementally more difficult to do so?
1: It seems to me that we don't have an option but to face up to the challenge of really oh, how do we build trust, how do we ensure more collaboration, more cooperation and more engagement to bridge the differences that polarise the world. Because if we don't do that, we'll be plunged into an endless state of crisis and conflict, which is not helpful from an economic point of view. Business cannot drive and cannot Mm -hmm. succeed in an environment where there
0: is no peace and stability. So how do you start unlocking that key then?
1: So we just need to reset our approach to leadership. We need a new crop of leaders imbued with new philosophies that are deliberate and intentional, in terms of building global peace and stability, and in terms of strengthening the global multilateral system. What we've seen in recent years has been the rise of political populism and economic protectionism. We need a, a new brand of leaders that look beyond political populism and economic protectionism to, to look at how do we unify the world, how do we use the globalization project as a force good. We have seen a trend also in terms of the world deglobalizing. If one were to refer to global trade statistics, uh, for example, we saw trade last year, according to the World Economic Forum, increased by 0.8%, whereas the global population increased by 2.8%. In normal times, and under normal circumstances, global trade should increase more than global population. But now we're seeing uh, the increase in global trade being below The increase in global population, which means that globalization is actually taking a retreat, which is something that needs to be addressed if we are to build trust.
0: And add to that problem, uh, as far as trade is concerned, uh, slow global economic growth and issues like rising debt and inflation. Again, it becomes increasingly more difficult for the WEF to contribute to restoring that trust in the system itself, doesn't it?
1: It does indeed. And I think the key issue there, Jeremy, is also looking at how do we ensure inclusive growth? How do we ensure that the growth is resilient and that it is sustainable? We don't want to have a situation where a lot of people feel left behind, which is given way, to political populists to take advantage of that. So the rise in inflation, rising interest rates, which combined results in the increase in the cost of living, which is affecting most people around the world, including us here in South Africa, is something that the World Economic Forum this year has got to deliberate on and look at finding sustainable and effective solutions on.
0: Well, let's pick up on South Africa and, inf- or for that matter, the rest of the continent. Representation this year, I think, is fair to say that it's modest. What are the implications? for the continent's role then in global discussions about trust and collaboration if we are not well represented?
1: The implications are very concerning, uh, Jeremy, because I think the the Davos Forum provides a strategic platform for South Africa to be part of global conversations of a strategic nature. It also provides us with a platform to showcase our growth plans and the successes that we've made in implementing those growth plans. And it is fundamentally important or critically important that we have senior and strategic representation and uh, above all else that we have a, a, a very compelling story to tell that is Fed-based rather than just based on throwing nice words here and there and trying to spin things from a PR point of view. Because let's not forget that economic actors have got access to very sound analysis of what's happening in most countries and regions around the world. And there's nowhere to hide in terms of not sharing honestly and openly in terms of what opportunities are and what the challenges are.
0: And in that case, things are particularly difficult for South Africa, given that we don't have a particularly good story to tell right now, do we?
1: I think the challenges we face, Jeremy, are not unique to us. We have a mixed bag. There are challenges especially in the three areas that have been identified by business and government. In the area of energy, we all know what the challenges are there, in freight and logistics, and in the issue of crime and corruption. We have challenges there. What South Africa should be proud of is that those challenges have been identified and private-public partnerships have been set up to try and deliver workable solutions. And I think that was provides an opportunity for Team South Africa to showcase that. And there are areas of opportunity where things are working well. If you look at our automobile manufacturing industry, Jeremy, it's one of the emblems of excellence in the global economy. You see cars driving in Europe and North America, manufactured either in Newton Hague or prospecting in Deben or somewhere in Silverton in the case of Ford and BMW in and East London in the case of Mercedes-Benz. Mm. And you look at our retail industry, it's really world-class and with outstanding, by all accounts, look at our financial services industry, look at our media for the fourth stage. We're able to make sure that the constitutional democracy that we have is protected because we've got a very robust and inquiring media that's constantly pushed back against uh, corruption, against uh, malfeasance and exposes wrongdoing. And we've got the judiciary that has recently also showcased itself. And above all else, what I'm also proud of our university sector. I also happen to be the chair of the council of the University of Pretoria. We produce world-class graduates that stand their own against the best from all corners of the world.
0: Kusanid Lamini, thank you very much for talking to me. Moneyweb midday for all your up-to-date stories. Well, from Davos now, let's move to politics and the ANC this weekend presenting its plans for this year's election in which it's widely expected the party will drop below 50%. Add to that the Jacob Zuma threat and the party's parlous financial position, and there must be sleepless nights among ANC leadership. Commentator Sanusha Naidu is with me now. And Sanusha, let's start with this, the Jacob Zuma MKV party. How real is the threat?
2: Well, it seems as if it's a threat, and then it's also one to try and ensure who captures the identity of the ANC, because that seems to be a kind of underlining essence of the fact that when you listen to the president's statement in December about why he's not going to vote ANC, but... Support the MKV, and now it's beginning to emerge that he's kind of the brains trust behind this party. And of course, there's reports that he may be the presidential candidate for this party. It suggests that this is really about how how much more can the ANC suffer at the polls. So it's got to deal with opposition on one hand, you know, your DA, your EFF, etc. But it also has to deal with the fact that the Electoral landscape is slowly but surely becoming much more contested for for the ANC in terms of parties like the MKV, like the All African Alliance Mm. um, uh, movement. I think that's what it's called, and then of course with uh, the former Secretary General Ace Magashule's party, you you kind of have this multi-pronged approach where. The party is firefighting at all ends. So it's not just enough to say, vote for us, as the president did over the weekend, and try to undermine in an aggressive tone, but not convincingly at times, that we're the only party that will continue to provide for the poor, the dispossessed, the marginalized with the with the social grants, etc. And if you don't vote for us or we're not in power, those things will disappear. No. I think that's quite an important thing to try to shift the narrative and shift the defense to an offense. But the problem with this is that it comes at a price because it's now not just about an external threat. It's a threat that becomes both internal and external at the same time. So it's within and outside of the party. And I think the threat of the MKV is more or less what's going to happen after the election. So this build up of consistently nipping and pushing at the heels of the ANC is making the ANC also now start thinking about are there people within our ranks that will basically just at the flip of a switch also break ranks with us and move to the MKV.
0: It was interesting that when the president was talking about the election, his battle plan, as you've referenced, has Is focusing on the ANC's 30-year track record, Mm -hmm. but that's not a track record that is going to be particularly easy
2: to sell, is it? No, because it's a track record that if you're comparing to where you were 30 years ago and what you have achieved, it actually makes you look good, but it only makes you look good in a space of a decade or a decade and a half, so in 15 years. In the period in which you came into power and in the period that you've been in power since 94 and in the 15 years thereafter means that you can use that track record. But once you start moving beyond the 15 years to the next 15 years and then you start asking a question is, yeah, the track record is cool in terms of you've created empowerment of women you've put women in in politics you've given them representation Mm. you've talked about social welfare you've talked about well i was a bit like bemused when the president said you know about infrastructure and tarred roads because i was in kzn recently and they don't look very tired to me but the problem i'm trying to say is that it only goes in so far as it serves a particular time frame once you go beyond that time frame of over 15 years and beyond that historical narrative has to be justified in the context of why now everything is broken
0: and that's going There's to test that's going yeah. to test the metal surely of the most loyal supporter
2: Absolutely. Like right now, KZN has gone through a series of floods over the weekend, infrastructure is broken. They can't manage the reconstruction in terms of what climate change is doing to that province and that city. But the problem here is that you can't use the 30 year narrative to say, we've liberated you, we've given you resources, we've given you social service delivery, because all of that has come with poor qualitative services.
0: It's also, Sunush and I do, surely about political positioning, and the party is placing itself uh, ideologically at the center still. But this must affect its ability to retain support uh, amidst growing political factionalism that we've already referenced with those smaller parties and also the emergence of, of, of more radical entities, that in itself signals an enormous amount of uh, of almost brand confusion, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's brand confusion, but it also comes with a very heavy uh, level, uh, level of retaining your identity within that brand context and confusion or ...brand weakness because the brand of the ANC is also being challenged in terms of what the MKV party is going to be doing in terms of saying, well, we're taking a certain aspect of your brand and we're rebranding it and saying we are going to go forward in terms of what the spirit of the incontest seaswear was. Now, it's almost ironical that the meaning of encounter is spear of the nation and of course this now raises questions about whether the ANC has actually managed to transform itself ideologically Intentionally, but more importantly, in terms of not just hanging on to a historical past that's slowly but surely evaporating at the rate of knots, because you can talk about the liberation of South Africa, you can talk about the democratization of South Africa, the role that ANC played, but the 30-year view that we gave you services doesn't come in a vacuum it comes within a contextual analysis, within a context Mm -hmm. of whether the services you provided, the social grants that you've given, at what cost does it come to... Both your reputational risk, but also your brand image, because all of that suggests that the ANC is just essentially playing on the politics of resources in order to try and continue to retain its identity within the political landscape of the country. And that's failing and weakening very fast. So the problem with the ANC is that parts of its brand is being taken away from it. And it's trying to hang on to its brand and fight and firefight, whether it has the right. ability to keep its lights on in Latuli House, whether it's paying its service providers. And people are coming in like the MKV, which is saying, well, we don't think that you've given enough viability and sustainability and kept the authenticity of this brand alive.
0: Sanish and I do thank you very much indeed for the analysis. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Today, the Democratic Alliance is calling on President Ramaphosa to commission an independent audit of all social grant recipient databases. Hundreds of people have reported that social grants for their children have not been paid, but on this program late last week, the South African Social Security Agency says there's been nothing exceptional about January's grant payments not being handed over. Let's talk now to the DA's Bridget Masangu, who is leading the charge on that issue for her party. So first up then, why the need for this audit?
3: The reason why I'm calling for the audit is because these problems of the glitches that circle back to the databases that SASA or the department is using is becoming a problem that is not ending. And I am saying that this problem is so big that we want to ask the president himself to make sure that it happens or the deputy president who is the leader of government business because it is a huge problem and it is affecting so many people in South Africa. As you know, there are no less than 18 million grants that are issued and this problem is just becoming a problem and we are saying Perhaps we have to go back to the basics and do a very thorough audit, independent, if possible, into the databases through which the grant payment system goes through before the grants are paid. Now,
0: firstly, the South African Social Security Agency is denying that there are any glitches. Secondly, given the recent revelations of payments to ghost beneficiaries, I'm just wondering whether the agency had any alternative but to suspend these payments. Surely that is following good protocol.
3: No, the denials, Jeremy, we don't actually accept those denials, which is the crux of of us not just pointing out problems, but trying to come up with solutions. Because After each of these crises, and I will call them that because of the numbers affected, we have always been made to believe or given undertakings that the system is going to be tightened and the stakeholders, other stakeholders that provide databases are going to be required to give up-to-date databases. And that never happened. So the reason why we are asking for this audit is because we are not pointing fingers but we are saying surely there must be something that can be done and maybe we need to look at the databases themselves.
0: So how do you believe then aside from the audit the systems can be in your word tightened?
3: I believe that I can use the examples that were given by SASA themselves. The the chief information officer of SASA said that because of the sheer numbers of data that goes through the systems, the system needs to be made to be as robust as possible to be able to handle the numbers. So we are saying you seem to have some knowledge of what can be done. I don't know technically how it's done to make a system robust, but I do have an idea that they might have to actually look even at the service provider and meet with service providers of this system and say, how can we make sure that the system is robust enough to detect all these errors that are going through? Because you have an error of people getting into the accounts of the beneficiaries, people in Sasa, the employees, getting into the system of Sasa and changing their account numbers so that they can receive the money. You have people that have passed on getting beneficiaries. You have people that are doing business with government getting beneficiaries. So it does mean that there are weaknesses in the system. So the system has to be tightened. How that technically can be done, I leave that to the people who are technical people who are SASA who have the mandate of paying the grant system is and to administer the grant system.
0: A second part of all of this is how government and SASA can institute effective processes to recoup the money that has been irregularly dispersed in the first place. How, how do they do that? Yes.
3: Well, they outlined a process to us that, first of all, it has to start with institution of disciplinary processes to actually confirm that the people that got the money erroneously did not themselves do this in contravention of the law or of the Social Assistance Act. And then if they are found that there are people, that they are the ones that actually knowingly did this, then it can be taken by other agencies of government, such as your police and uh, whoever it is that is the appropriate agency. And then that's when the prosecution happens but we are saying that that is slow first of all the numbers are too big you have 40,000 right. and only 4,000 of these processes have been instituted so we're saying that is slow so get a special process that because this is an emergency and it is a crisis.
0: All right the DA's Bridget Masango thank you very much for joining me on Money Web at Midday. Money Web at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Now, you'll remember that last year saw South Africa battle a cholera outbreak, and less than a year later... We read now that Zimbabwe and Zambia are battling an outbreak of their own. So how concerned should we be in this respect? I want to talk now to Dr. Chris van Straten, Global Health Advisor, Clinical Governance at uh, the International SOS. Uh, Doctor, first of all then, how significant is the risk of these outbreaks spreading to neighboring countries like South Africa?
4: What we've seen and looking at a WHO report released on the 11th of January is we're seeing a definite increase in cholera cases in surrounding countries. That includes Malawi, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, especially up north, and also other countries like Tanzania, where significant numbers have occurred. But the risks to us in South Africa is that people returning to South Africa after the vacation period and or coming for work could obviously bring cholera with them and if not detected early, not detected at the border, could potentially then bring it into the country like we saw prior in 2023 mm-hmm. with the outbreak in Kral, for example, or in the townships in Johannesburg.
0: Do you believe that screening at land ports then is sufficient?
4: I don't think it's the only solution. I think it's an important component. We do know that there are individuals who can have cholera but not be symptomatic. In other words, someone could pick it up. and not having severe gastro, they're not feeling particularly ill. And if you look at the case definition that is being used at the borders, the definition is a person of any age with or dying from acute watery diarrhea with or without vomiting. So that's, that's the case or suspected case and then of course to confirm it the laboratory results need to confirm that it is in fact a cholera case so it is possible that cases could slip through and hence it's also really important that we need to be educating people on both sides of the border how to prevent when to suspect when to seek help and probably next question is how do we make sure our infrastructure can cope with cholera for example, the water and adequate, we could have a potentially a big outbreak in South Africa.
0: And that remains of increasing concern, does it not, given the Hammond's Kral incident that happened last year?
4: Absolutely. Now, what's really interesting with Hammond's Kral is, for long, people didn't think we'd find the source, the initial case. But that individual was found, and it was a case of someone coming from up north, had cholera, infected people in Hammond's Crawl, and in Hammond's Crawl, initially there were major concerns that it was poor water and that the cholera was in the water. Turns out that it was not the case but I think that was a potential for a firestorm so if the cholera had contaminated local water sources many many more people could have become seriously sick. Chris are
0: we in a, a, a high risk time zone right now given the increased travel after the holiday season?
4: I would say yes there's increased people come moving after vacation or seeing family in neighboring countries Zimbabwe Malawi Mozambique being the three most common we are seeing increased of people coming back starting to work and all people coming down to seek employment in South Africa so yes we are
0: what is your modelling telling you? Are we uh, are you are you concerned right now, or do you think that, uh, given that warnings have been sounded, uh, we have enough uh, uh, mitigation in place?
4: Uh, yes and no, not black and white. It's I'm very pleased by what the National Institute of Communicable Diseases continues to do in terms of making sure that people are aware, not just at the border. I'm pleased with some of the media coverage that we're seeing in South Africa, but also abroad, looking at BBC, uh, Al Jazeera, I'm very pleased with WHO, and their interventions and supported on coalition with UNICEF, making sure that the vaccines, by the way, are really difficult to get. And they've been ensuring that where the hotspots are occurring, they're getting vaccines and getting them to community. But the vaccine isn't the golden bullet or the silver bullet. We need to ensure that the communities have safe potable water, that sanitation is appropriate. People are washing their hands before and after defecation, for example, and or preparing food. Uh, And it needs to be a society-wide effort to continue. So there is definitely concern. We are, I think, on a stronger footing than some of our neighbours but we need to look at our infrastructure and we need to keep driving that message.
0: Well, the warning has been sounded. Dr. Chris van Straaten, thank you very much indeed. And that's where we're going to end our programme for today. Just before we go, other stories on our radar. Floods in KwaZulu-Natal have caused severe damage to school infrastructure. We're reading that 59 schools in 9 of the 12 districts affected. And the aid agency Oxfam today, a report out of London, is predicting the first trillion air within a decade, with the growing gap between rich and poor likely to increase. Money at midday. We are live at noon every weekday, then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at Midday or download episodes on MoneyWeb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify or follow MoneyWeb news on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.